grew up as an American double in the pale ale. This beer is not intended to be the biggest or most bitter. It is meant to give you your wave left a wave of hoppy goodness on your palate. Tremendous amounts of American warps will creep up on you and leave you with a dense hoppy finish in your mouth. So drinkable it's scary. Sorry, sorry, yeah, again, super local. We go. We're, we're up. We're up. We're running. Uh, yeah, this is Super Local episode three. Is it really three? Yeah, it's been. It seems like it's gone by so quickly. <laughs> we're we're enjoying it. It is. It's good. It's a good way to good way to while away the afternoons for sure. <laughs> we have been doing afternoons, Sunday afternoons, as of late. Yeah. Uh, I think we did one nighttime. I think we do Sunday afternoons because our whole lives go completely bananas all week. That's true. And this is the only That's time true. that we could ever really find it to make it happen. Although I did run into Josh Schwartz, a future guest on the pod, yeah. uh, and mentioned to him I wanted I want to talk to him about beer tourism in Vermont, and he yeah. was ecstatic. Great. And he said, "When can when do you want to do it?" I said, "How about Friday at four? Yeah. And you could see the wheels in his brain working. You know <laughs> that he's like. That means he can leave work early. Yeah, come over, drink a beer, yeah. talk about beer, um, all all good things. Yeah, uh, that's a great way to end the week. <laughs> we're gonna try. We're gonna try and get onto our, our Friday afternoon record happy hour schedule. It is. It, it is. is. Josh Schwartz. Yeah. No, th- it's great. And today, you know, we have a we have some amazing uh, amazing interview with Doug Lewis that we're gonna queue up. Which I, I, I you know, it's funny. I've known Doug forever. Um, you know, and he's a a man about town, a skier, uh, and a right. commentator. He, he went to Pyeongchang and covered the U.S. alpine skiing um, as a member of the media. And, and it's just a really, it's great that he's going to you know, give us a little bit of his time. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, you uh, you preempted this, I think, last week. You teased this uh, this thing. So cool that it's happening. Yeah, it's kind of uh, was he Is he working for NBC? Or? He was working for, uh, he was covering it for radio. But, uh, but we'll let him talk about that. I don't want. I don't want to tease it too we much. We like the radio industry <laughs> we here. It's super local. Yeah, yes. exactly. We can, we can commiserate. <laughs> it's 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 all a good thing. But you know, he was. Uh, you know his his if you uh, Wikipedia the him, which I think is a verb. Um, <laughs> his his like big claim to fame is really that he won the bronze at um, the Bormio World Championships in 1985. Which is pretty amazing, and you know, uh, Bormio at the time nobody had ever heard of him. He really kind of was a, right. out of nowhere, um, and it's funny, you know. I watched the YouTube of him finishing, and just the uh, the the exultation as he crossed and saw his time was was incredible. It's just it's exci- it was super exciting. But you know, as as I was thinking about that and looking back at 1985, I was thinking to myself, you know, as most people would do. How much does Chicky really remember about 1985? 1985, I would have been in <coughs> eighth grade. Really? Yep. Um, what were you doing in eighth grade? So I probably remember more of my eighth grade <laughs> than my senior year <laughs> in mm-hmm. school. 
I believe that for some reason. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah. So what, I mean, what were you doing, uh, you know, the, in mid, mid March of 1985 as an eighth grader? I probably would have been sitting in somebody's garage with a really bad drum set, mm. uh, working on the, the new song that somebody wrote. That's from like tears for fears or something like that. I, yeah, I had, I, I was in a pop band. <laughs> It was like Inaccessy. You know? Inaccessy. Was that the name of it? Inaccessy. No. It was called the Green, the Blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, oh, I don't want to call. I don't want to <laughs> say it was emo, but it, but it was trending that way. Oh my god! How many songs did you guys play? A lot. All really? original. Really? Yeah. Um, there was probably twenty-five songs, something like that. Wow. We played school dances. Really? So I'm going to guess that like late March, <coughs> that's probably what I would be doing on a Sunday afternoon. All right. So here's the first question. You know, so you were a band guy. Yeah. So clearly on the pulse of music in 1985. Sure. Top 10 songs from 1985. Do you want to take a bet on, can you remember any of them, you think? Life in a Northern Town by Dream Academy. Oh my god, I'm I'm not seeing that on my paper. The only, and the only reason I say that because I was listening to some like uh, these are the top ten hits in 1984 or whatever it was uh, it, on my uh, on my drive around this morning. It's you know just I mean, I, I'll, I'll just sort of give you some context. I mean, I'm looking at this list right here. You know, looking at the top top forty. You know, we're not going to do the whole top forty, but just you see. Uh, I see a lot of Duran Duran on here. Okay. I'm just want just as a little bit of a concept. Yeah. I see some Phil Collins on here. Okay. Um, and you get into the top 20. Number 20 is We Are the World, USA for Africa. Wow. Can you believe that? 1985. Yeah. It was uh that was that was a big okay, deal. Okay, so All right. know, we're talking it was it was Live Aid that year, right? Uh, yeah, right? I think so. Yeah. Bob Geldof? Bob Geldof. Yeah. The Boomtown Rat. He did a lot since then. So. <laughs> that was his bright, shining moment. Like, he came from nowhere and, like, all yeah. of a sudden was the man. Yeah. On that yeah. whole thing, which he was went, incredible. He went big. Um, yeah, number 20, We Are the World. Number 19, mm -hmm. Glenn Fry. The Heat is On. Oh, which is incredible. Terrible. Number 18, St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion by John Parr. I'm not sure I, I even know what that means. That was a movie. St. Elmo's Fire, yeah. Demi Moore, I think, was in that. She's great. Yeah. She was better then, I think, though. <laughs> 17, Cherish by Cool and the Gang. Yep. 16, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. I can hear, Huge. I can hear Casey Kasem's voice. And don't you forget about me. It was this morning. They still, like, they rebroadcast all these old uh, yeah. American Top 40s with Casey Kasem. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. And number 15, Huey Lewis in the News, The Power of Love, which I think was from Back to the Future. Yeah. Right? One of the Back to the Futures. One of them. Which when you when you uh, have yeah. kids you, you watch them again yeah. with the kids. Yeah. And they love them. Yeah. Because everybody loves Michael J. Fox. It's interesting. But it is an interesting conversation though, the watching the movie with the kids. Yeah. Because there's certain movies that just don't translate. Uh, but at the same point, there's certain movies that you feel like, especially as a dad, that the child needs to have the context and they have to watch it, right? Like you need to watch Jaws or you need right. to watch right. Caddyshack in an unedited way. Right, like there's a, 
It's funny you should mention Caddyshack because that's what we watched last night at, no at Dude's Paradise. Unedited? By the way, Dude's Paradise, for, for those of you that don't know, is when my wife is out of the house for the night or doing something or other. Um, and it's me and my two boys. It's Dude's Paradise. And you watched Caddyshack? Last night. Did you get well, on Netflix? Yeah, and there's a, like... there's, a, there's a pretty serious topless scene in it. And <laughs> I had forgotten. <laughs> when, when you define and got it, I mean, and it's, got not like, it's not like they were doing brain surgery while topless. When you say a serious <clears throat> topless scene, you mean that it was an extended, it, exactly sexual situation. Exactly. Yeah. It was a it was a Hollywood moment. But I will say, you know, we watched. Uh, I have not watched Caddyshack with my kids, but we did watch Stripes, and I was really yeah. Struck that's by the, that's the fact, Jack. The gratuitous topless scenes, which are just placed in the movie with no advancing of the plot. It's not like it's even a sex scene. It's just like they had to get some nudity in it at like minute nineteen. That was that was the style of the time. Yeah, that was de rigueur. It was you flash know, it and move on. You there was boobs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what it was. There will be boobs. It was, it's a ridiculous thing. And <laughs> and I will I mean, I love stripes, but like that part of it, it's it's so gratuitous. I mean, it, it's a remarkable. Remarkable. Um so wait, wait, you you rented Caddyshack? No. No. This is on Netflix, oh. I think. Wow, that's fantastic. I didn't realize it was on Netflix. Yeah. And did the kids like it? Um did they get it? Probably. <laughs> probably. And yeah. What my takeaway was <coughs> I didn't think of when I first saw it, and you know, I was watching it because because Chevy Chase was great, right? Mm -hmm. So funny, mm -hmm. so smooth, so cool. Yeah. But watching it last night, Rodney Dangerfield, man, that yes. guy is like legend, awesome force of nature. And Ted Knight, like spectacular. Judge Small Smales. Judge Smales. Yeah. Oh my god. That's <laughs> so good. Anyway, it was a good. It was a good dude's paradise. Actually. Yeah, that's 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 too good. All right, so number fourteen. Am I supposed to be guessing some of these? Is I that guess. What we're doing? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to like. I could give you the band, and you can guess the song, or I can give you the song name, and you can guess the band. Uh, give me the song name, and I'll guess the band. All right, number fourteen. Mm -hmm. We built this city. That would be Starship. Oh wow. Number thirteen. Can't fight this feeling. Ario Speedwagon. Nice. You're pretty good. Um, number 12. This is almost a trick question because it's actually listed as a duet. Mm -hmm. Easy Lover. That's Philip Bailey with um, Phil Collins. I'm super impressed. That is such a drummer dork answer. <laughs> uh, number 11. Every Time You Go Away. Oh, Paul Young? Wow. Super impressed. Wow, you're <laughs> crushing it. Thanks. Number 10. Take on me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh -huh. It's almost getting easier, though, going this way. Number nine, crazy for you. I'm crazy for you. Madonna. That's, the, that was correct. I don't think that that tune was correct, but the answer was correct. Oh, okay. Uh, number eight, super question. easy, money for nothing. Dire Straits. Yes. Um, that is one of the greatest guitar licks and intros ever recorded yes in that song yeah you like that one so good so good yeah those guys are amazing mm -hmm. number seven everybody wants to rule the world the tears for fears the tears for fears really one of the wussiest band names like but cool band cool band gray haircuts <laughs> um number six out of touch 
That would be whole nuts. <laughs> so good. Number five, I feel for you. Uh, Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. <laughs> um, a lot of these could go like there's probably a couple of them <coughs> by the same song yeah oh for, yeah if we went if there are for sure um number four mm-hmm. i want to know what love is i want you to show me i want to know what love is. <laughs> sorry i was just complaining of course show me yeah that's, that's the foreigner it is foreign yes yeah the foreigner number three wake me up before you go go the wham. The wham. Mm-hmm. Exclamation point. Sure. Number two, like a virgin. Wow. Match was in here twice. I know, right? Yep. And number one, the 1985 number one song on the countdown. Do you want to guess? Yeah, I do. Um, it is one of the bands that has been mentioned already. One of the bands that's been mentioned already is the number one song from 1985. From 1985, not for the whole year, but for this week in 1985, I, for the whole year. I, uh, that's a great question. We'll have to check with our analyst. Right. This is year-end chart. Okay. And it's one of the bands that's already been mentioned. In the t- I'll, even, I'll even narrow it down. One of the bands mentioned in the top ten. Um... I'm gonna I'm gonna go with another Dire Straits song. Oh, that's that's how I know you're such a dork because that's so not true. <laughs> like I love I love that you're saying yeah, right just because I like them so much. Was it down to the waterline? <laughs> well, <laughs> tell tell there's, there's so much. Tell our listeners what was number one. Careless Whisper. Oh God, of course. My horse. Oh yeah. I feel awful now. Well, you should, just knowing that we listened to Wham! for that much time. All right, Nate, quickly, the 57th Academy Awards in 1985. This was remarkable. I mean, best picture. Any idea? Could you you name one of the five best pictures from 1985? 1985, um, A Few Good Men. Wow, that's a really good guess. It's not in there, though. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I thought that was a good guess, though. The best picture was Amadeus, which was an amazing picture. Great movie. Incredible. And then it was The Killing Fields, Passage to India, Places in the Heart, and and A Soldier's Story. I remember The Killing Fields. That was a great movie. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's just best actor was uh, the guy from Amadeus. Tom Holtz. Uh, but no, this this is listening. F. Murray Abraham, which is at Salieri. Was that the other? Yes, guy? the other guy, the villain, the villain, the villain yeah. of the film, who, who d- didn't have the talent, but was but was there every step of the way. Yeah, that's a great. one. Have you watched that with your kids? No. <laughs> Do you think that would? Tra- I mean, There's gratuitous all kinds of stuff in that. I believe that there is gratuitous all sorts. When do we get to that? Like, like, it probably never feels comfortable to watch like. You know, uh, nudity and things like that with your kids, but at least with like the the all the stuff. Well, you want to show them the old films. What's well, interesting? I mean, it's it's different. I don't know. It's, I thought it was very interesting. I remember going to see Blue Lagoon with my mother, <laughs> right? Because she didn't want to have the sex conversation, and she thought, "Well, I'll just oh. take I'll just take him to that, and and it's, he can figure it out for himself." But it's I will semi brilliant. But it is semi brilliant, and to a certain extent, like if the if it's in context. You know, it's like when your kid uses the F-bomb 
Yeah. As long as it's used correctly, there's some benefits there. But if you're just going to say it to say it, then you know you're going to get your mouth washed out with soap. Um, it that word did pop out of one of their mouths um, because of the snow day that was not called. <laughs> yes, there was an epic <coughs> rant that challenged yeah. the stillness of the the late snowfall out out the window. I believe that. Yeah, yeah. What what the f is going on? Yeah. Can we? Yeah. Anyway, we we heard a little of that. Our kids use the. Uh, the Snow Day Calculator app, yes, which is, which I've is, heard of which is pretty accurate. I have yep. to say, it's been it's been really. Was it wrong this week? It uh, no, it was pretty accurate actually. Oh, wow, all yeah. right, and they didn't want to believe it. Yeah, um, I, I, the, a couple of things that I thought were really funny on this Oscar list from 1985. Um, one was that for best supporting actor, he did not win, but Pat Morita. From was nominated for the Karate Kid for Best Supporting Actor, <laughs> Mr. Miyagi. That's interesting. <laughs> and probably, I was like, really? You know, it's, like, it's, that's that's like what we were looking at for Best Actor. Yeah, that's kind of weird, right? And another one, Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, not a winner, but nominated was Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> was nominated for Best Screenplay. Isn't that amazing? And you, when when you think about the the Oscar list from this year, it was it was it's intense stuff. It's intense stuff. It's nothing like Beverly Hills Cop or it, the Karate Kid or that made money, which I think part. I mean, right? Part of this is like these were these are hits, you know. And uh, also nominated for best screenplay was Splash, which is is that not the Mermaid movie with Tom Hanks? Yeah, and and pretty forgettable, other than you know the the lovely Daryl Hannah, right? Yeah, but yeah. forgettable. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, best supporting actress, I loved this. That Glenn Close was nominated for her role in The Natural, which is a great movie, baseball movie with Robert Redford. It's one of my faves. That's a great movie. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, another She's good great. one. Um, yeah, and there's. It's just amazing. And, and another interesting thing that I saw on here was uh, in Best Documentary Feature, uh, the winner was The Times of Harvey Milk, which I believe is the character or the person yeah. that uh, he was the uh, gay activist in San Francisco that yep. uh, then Sean Penn played in Milk, which was a feature film a couple years ago. Yeah. And so that documentary was made in 1985, which was probably like, I mean, when did we, when did the... The, the curtain got pulled back on AIDS right around... Oh, right around that time. But, and get this, best original song, and does not say what movie this was in, was Purple Rain from Prince, which must have been from the movie Purple Rain. And why aren't we not seeing Purple Rain all over the other lists from the Academy Awards? Let's Probably see. because, truth be told, it's a bad movie. <laughs> Purple Rain? But if you're a Prince fan, it's an awesome movie. The rivalry between Prince and Morris Day and the time? Oh, I love it. <laughs> but to it. be objective, it is not a great movie. Prince on that giant motorcycle trying to park it is one of my favorite soon scenes in, in any movie. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, the thing's he's about not to doing fall. Very, he's not doing very well. And he's in his, That was maybe the one and only time that he wrote a He's got his like Amadeus costume on with the like flowery like ruffles and he's driving his motorcycle around in Minneapolis. Yeah and, it's, and, yeah, and it seems like, you know, they're out in the woods like at the lake and it's like, you know, early spring. There's no leaves. It's not like pretty, you yeah. know. It's very weird. We should watch that again. I would like to watch that. I would watch that on Dude's Paradise Night. 
you could watch like Purple Rain. Yeah, movies yeah. that rock. Like but that would be that would be a great one. I, I, we could put that on the big screen. We should rent the Valley Players Theater and show that. See if anybody comes. Yeah, I would, <laughs> yeah, that's a good that would be weird. Not the worst <coughs> uh, music semi biopic movie though. No, like what would you say? What is the worst? I don't know if you ever saw the Mariah Carey movie. I did not. I think it was called Glitter. I did not. Um, Amy and I watched it, and it was it was strikingly bad. And we put it into the category of one of the worst movies that we'd ever seen. Which makes Just, it which for makes an, it good though. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for I'm an example, she's young and she's just moved to the big city, and she hooks up with this guy who's a DJ, but secretly he's this musician who wants to have hit records and stuff. And do you know what the instrument is that he plays? Uh, the harmonica? The marimba. I don't even know what a marimba is. It's like the big keyboard instrument with the wood keys and everything, and you hit it with hammers. Is that not what... It's not like he was a guitar player or a saxophone player. He played the marimba. Is that not what um, the woman in Purple Rain plays? The, the, the one female musician? It's not, there's a couple females. It's not Shaka Khan. Lisa and Wendy from the Revolution, it, right? Well, there's Lisa and Wendy from the Revolution, but then there's... Oh, what's her name? Shili? Shili. Does she, she play the marimba? She's like... She played drums, but she did not... She not like percussion. She did not play the marimba. She was super the, hot. The... <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Okay. I'm not going to lie. All right. Um, all right, so 1985. We're still, you know, remember talking 1985. Sure. 1985 NBA Finals. Do you remember oh. anything about this? I saved this for you. Oh. Any idea? I'm going to guess it was um, Lakers. Correct. Celtics. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, and now I have to guess how it turned out. Yes, you do. Uh, I'm going to say it was Lakers. That's correct. And it was not only that, it was the first time the Lakers had ever beat the Celtics in the NBA championships. Mm. This was, that was their, that was it, you know, and the MVP was Kareem. Um, I'd say, I think it was a pretty good 1985 time capsule. We didn't, I was really totally, wondering. and this is really to celebrate our, our interview today with uh, with Doug uh, Wilkins. Yeah, exactly. World Cup. And you know, and it's interesting. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I think you'll. Oh, I hope everybody enjoys this conversation with Doug. Uh, he's a great guy and a great friend. And um, yeah, let's uh, let's get him on the phone and, and see what he has to say. Sounds great. So Doug Lewis, welcome to Super Local. Are, are you excited about that? I, I'm excited to still be called a local, even though I uh, distance myself from, from, from Vermont from the winters. Uh, I live up on Bragg Hill, and I I hope I'm super local still. You are, you I, dude. There's a poster of you up at Mount Ellen. I saw it today. You know, I mean, well. That one has a lot of hair, and people don't know what's going on. And if you look closely, it's me with my medal and flowers. And one of the elite team athletes asked me if I was a figure skater. And I was like, <laughs> no, uh, I'm a ski racer. Oh, my it God. Just looks, it looks very generic. That's hysterical. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it's still, it's still in there. It looks good. And honestly, I was up at Mount Ellen today. It was, it was skiing great. You know, it's just, Good. you know, you got the... 
the emotional roller coaster of the Vermont winter is what we always deal with. But now everybody's an East Coast skier now, right? Yeah, and I'm coming back in April, so there better be some good skinning and good some good skiing left. I tell you, this this last storm, it was a season saver. It's pretty awesome. It was great. Good. But um, so I wanted to get you on here because you know, just as one of the short list of people that I know that actually went to Korea for the Olympics, I was just I was just hoping to hear about it. And you know, I mean, you've been you've been on the circuit for a while. You've been covering skiing. You've been in the ski world, but. When did you find out you were going to Korea and was it something you asked about or, or did they come to you? Well, I participated in two a long time ago and then this happened to be my fourth Olympics where I was working for the media. Um, the first two, I was more of a live announcer and then the last two, uh, Sochi and this one, I worked for NBC Westwood Radio. Um, and since Bodie Miller got, takes my job, during the Olympics, um, I still want to be involved. I still love being around it. I still love covering alpine ski racing. So I uh, hooked on with the NBC radio crew. And to tell you the truth, it is it is a great job because it, it allows me to share my passion for ski racing and, and stay involved. But I also got a lot of time off and I saw a lot of events, much more than I did in Sochi. So I really enjoyed Pyeongchang. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It, it looked amazing. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, did you get to see anything else? And, you know, especially with that giant weather hold at the beginning of the ski racing, that must have opened up a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, um, it was a lot of fire... Uh, fire drills, even though they got canceled, I was up at six, took the bus for an hour to the venue, got up, got on the hill, and then they canceled it. So those were not free days, unfortunately, but um, it stacked everything up um, alpine ski-wise. So we did two races in a day, and, and to, I don't know if everybody understood, but the two venues, when there was a men's race and a women's race going on, the venues are an hour apart. So we had to choose which one to go to. We usually choose the Makeva Schifrin race. Sure. And we'd call her first run. Then we'd call live from the venue. Then we would call the men's race off of the television and then call the second run of the women and then potentially the third, the fourth run, uh, which is the second run of the men. So there was some big days as well. But uh, getting back to your question, I was able to see half-pipe ski, slope-style snowboard, ski or cross, um, I also, and this is probably the peak of my Olympic experience, I made sure I went over to the Nordic ladies and I got to see Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall oh. win their gold, historic gold. And I took video of it standing with all the USA families and, and supporters. And the video is just basically screaming <laughs> and fans and people's heads because we were going crazy. Oh, this is awesome. That's, that's incredible. So... When you were um, when you're at the event and you're covering the event, where are you? Um, so when I'm working, um, NBC has booths. So this is this is a funny day uh, of me working. So I get there early because I make sure that I get on the hill to inspect. If I inspect, I can say, "Hey, this is the snow at gate three. This is the set." You know, it makes what? my in analyzing better. Plus I can ask the athletes. I go up to Schifrin, I go up to Vaughn, I go up to um, Goop, whoever, and say, you know, how you feeling, if they actually want to talk. And so Wait, that's so you're the on most, ski that's the you're on skis? 
I'm on skis. I brought skis. I get. I put it in my contract that I get to ski because if I didn't get to ski and just covered Olympics, no way I'd do it. But I yeah. get to ski every day, so that's it's pretty awesome. And you know, so I mean, just it's just you know, not everybody knows how bomber that snowpack is. I mean, even just to test ski it. I mean, how how hard was that snow? It, um, if for anybody, 98% of the, the skiing world, it would be a death sheet of ice. It is a vertical ice rink. Uh, they, they water it, they inject it, they slip it. It is so slick for the racers. Actually, the, the, the snow was money. It was hard, so it didn't rub up, but it was actually grippy in a way. So it allowed them to carve up the line that they wanted to carve up. So it was perfect snow, challenging, but perfect. And so, and so back to, so you get up there, you sort of inspect the course with the racers and maybe see if you could make eye contact and get called over and get a couple comments and um, and, and then you all, and then you're all sort of skiing it and inspecting it together. Right. Yeah, there's a, usually about an hour 15. So I make sure I'm first on usually can talk to, um, some of the athletes before it starts with their little loose during the inspection. I'm inspecting and just watching them talking to coaches. Hey, how's your athlete feeling? Does this, does this course match your athlete? Then I make sure that I end the inspection early. So then I, uh, take off my skis, jump over a couple fences, show my credential, and get into my spot. And the athletes come by, and I interview them um, if they stop. Then I run up. I have like an hour off, and then I'm in my booth. We call the top thirty racers for radio, uh, whether they use them or not on the radio. We I don't know, but we call them. And then I run down as fast as I can, uh, about eight flights of stairs. Um, and get over a couple fences through the credential area, through the security, and then I'm back at my microphone spot, which is right after television. And this is called the mix zone, and it takes the athletes approximately two hours to get through the mix zone. And then I get the interviews with the medalists. Then I run back up the eight flights of stairs and do a wrap, which is just a couple um, couple three-minute hits um, about my thoughts on the day, and then I'm done. So it was a lot of work, a lot of running, but really exciting. It's kind of, it sounds a little bit like the biathlon. You know, you've got to, you've got to jack your heart rate and then calm down enough to make sense <laughs> on the radio. That is that's a good comparison, <laughs> that's for sure. But um, then I get on the bus, and then I pick, I look in my computer, hey, what's happening? Is jumping, is sliding center is open, is moguls, and I, and I get to do go do that. So the, the Alpine, um, the race venue, it, it looked like they just cut that trail and are they going to let it grow back in once it's over? I mean, it looked like that was all that was going on up there. Well, for the speed venue, um, that's what they're going to do. Um, it is a um, protected area. I don't know how they got the okay to, to cut it, but it's a protected religious area or something and they're just going to take down the uh the word is they're going to take down the lifts and, and let that grow out and that'll be never used again however the technical um venues they're a ski country there's probably um you know just take washington county is where uh pyeongchang is say the size of washington county there's probably 10 ski areas within that area. You just drive by ski areas all the time and ski shops and, and hotels it is a ski country over there. Yeah, it's actually, you know, I mean, in the outdoor industry, you know, South Korea is frequently cited as, as really the sweet spot of the outdoor industry in Asia. I mean, China's obviously has a ton of consumers, 
but really South Korea, it's an outdoor place, you know, mountains and, you know, very active outdoor population. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. So, so where, where did you stay when you were at the Olympics? Um, I think it, this is the best comparison. It's like the Burlington having the Olympics and right, right. in Burlington would be the, the big skating rink and the, the opening ceremonies. There's like three or four stadiums. And then Alpine was at Sugarbush. Um, the speed was at Sugarbush. The tech was at Stowe and the, um, the half pipe and moguls were at J. That's about the distances that we had to take as buses. And so um, that's how it was set up. And it was, and it was spread out, but the bus system was great. That's, neat. That, that, that's incredible. And so, wait, so you brought your skis. Uh, did you do any free skiing or was it just the skiing uh, for the inspection of the course? Um, I actually, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a ski freak. So I would ski uh, afterwards and on my day off twice, I, I just went to a ski area and, and ripped some turns. And, you know, I still get to see some training going on, but yeah, I got to rip some stuff and, and it was, it was great. Not a lot of natural snow, but a lot of man-made and it was cold as everybody heard. So it was yeah. really fun. All right. So let's talk about, let's talk about the competition and the athletes. Do you feel that it was... I don't know. I have my feelings about whether or not I was sort of satisfied, unsatisfied. And, you know, I thought it was fantastic. I thought the American athletes did great. I thought the world brought, brought game as a sort of an expert eye on it. What's, you know, now that you've had a couple of days to kind of think back on it, you know, how will this Olympics be remembered, particularly for us skiing? Oh, I hope, I hope it's remembered for, um, a couple of strong women and Michaela Schifrin and, and Lindsay Vaughn and some young skiers getting named to the team to get that experience. However, um, I have my, my worries. I think the ski team is not very deep. I think they are, um, very top heavy and they, uh, support the top very well, but underneath lurking is a, is a big void. And so if we're just talking about us ski skiing, um, Alpine, it's, it's in real trouble, unfortunately. And, um, it just showed there. I mean, I'm, I'm all, I'm all over, you know, great, um, competitions and, and David Chinunski skied his heart out and Megan McJames and all this, but you putting my U.S. ski team supporter hat on and the fact that we tout a lot of medals, you can't then when you don't win medals, not talk about the lack of medals. So I think there's a, there's some real trouble lurking there uh, that we need to, to really think about as a, as a nation of us ski and snowboard. That's a super interesting commentary. I mean, is that a situation that's based on the context and what other countries are doing and they're continuing to up their game and we're slipping or is it, is it just we just don't have those bodies in place right now, or is there any sort of conventional wisdom as to how to fix that? I, I think it's a, it's a problem with about 10, 10 parts to it. It's not just hey, let's put more money in development. Hey, let's um, give more money to the clubs. It's not one thing. It's a lot of things. But um, in the past eight to 12 years, we've done great job supporting our phenomenon, our, our phenoms, Michaela Schifrin, Vaughn, Bodie, Ted Ligeti. But I don't think that we have um, spent enough time and energy and, and skill 
developing the next generation, the people that replace them. And now we're seeing it because Bodie's retired, Mancuso just retired. Ted maybe, uh, you know, has a year left. Hopefully he'll return to the top, but Ted's there and Vaughn's going to retire as soon as she gets 86 or 87 World Cup wins. So it's staring us in the face. It's not one answer, but definitely development needs uh, some priority and some energy and some money and some, some help. That's super interesting. And then, so what about skiing as compared to you got to go around and check out, uh, you know, some of the other venues, some of the other teams, some of the other athletes, how do you feel skiing stacks compared? I mean, you don't really compare it to the rest of the American athletes, but, but what if you did, I mean, is skiing this, you know, holding its own versus figure yeah. skating and or cross country or bobsled or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, I don't watch figure skating. Sorry. <laughs> so that one's going to be. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, I think you heard a lot about it. There's a great article um, about the Norwegian team. Of course, we've read about the Nordic women's side, especially the team effort. And I don't see that on the Alpine um, except for the uh, women's speed. On the women's speed, you have Breezy Johnson and Alice McKennis and Lindsay and um, uh, Alice Merriweather and, and Stacey Cook. And it is a huge team and they work as a team. So I think that's the biggest thing that's going to come out of this Olympics is that um, countries and individuals, teams that work as a team, really um, um, live, travel, suffer, have success as a team are the ones that are really successful. So um, I think we need to get back to that. I just think back to my days, um, even though Bill Johnson was a, a figure that was interesting and that's a whole nother podcast. We had a team on the men's downhill side and it was Bill and then it passed to me. And then I passed it to AJ Kitt who passed it to Tommy Moe, who passed it to Kyle Rasmussen, to Darren Rawls, to Bodie Miller and that's how it's worked. And so I think that's a big one that the U.S. Ski and Snowboard uh, team has to worry about. How do we get that culture of teamwork back? I, you know, Doug, I'm super glad you brought that up because I did see that uh, Norwegian ski team feature mm. and it stuck with me for days, you know, just seeing how this really what's considered an individual sport in air quotes uh, by most people, how they're approaching it with a team ethic, with camaraderie pushing each other, celebrating each other's wins, you know, embracing each other when they lose. And you saw it. You saw how close the mm -hmm. men and the women were. And, you know, it's just, I was having a conversation with somebody. It's like, and, and you know, this is just to switch switch sports. But, you know, when Sean White would finish his half, type, half pipe rum and he's high, you know, he's getting the crowd going, there's no team running out to hug him. You know, right. the same thing with the American skiers. They finish a great run. There's no, there's no panning to the other uh, athletes saying, you know, look how psyched we are. I, I did see that in the women's, you know, particularly with Lindsey Vaughn calling stuff up back to Breezy before she raced. But that's, yeah. a, that's a real, you know, it's interesting. And, and I would love to just sort of the question to you is, is it because we have been celebrating the top so much and emphasizing the individual part? But it's lonely out there on the ski racing circuit, right? Like if you win, everybody loves you. And if you're if you're second, then you're on the bus. Yeah, and it's just the 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 focus that the US ski team has had. Um, support our superstars with as much support as possible. And it's it until this past year, um, it's 
it's resulted in a lot of metals. So maybe it's a rethink of, of how we do it. I can't speak for Michaela Schifrin, but I know that um, although she needs to train by herself and she's very focused, I think it is so helpful and um, positive for her to have other teammates around to break that tension, to break that pressure, to get her thinking of something else. And so maybe um, I would hope maybe Michaela says, you know, let's let's change the way I'm training a little bit because I need a little bit more of a team around me. I'm, I'm, that's purely me talking. So, what, what's Michaela like? You know, I mean, I I've never met her. All I know is what I see on 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 camera. She looks remarkably poised and together. It's, it blows me away sometimes to see how how effortlessly she handles the whole thing. You know, when you're talking to her before the mic's running or anything like that, like what what's she like? Um, luckily, she went to elite team. My summer camp as an eleven year old, so I've gotten yeah. to know her for twelve years or yeah. eleven years. Um, and I know her mom, and we all hear about Eileen, her mom, coach, best friend, all that. Um, I am in a great position because Michaela, you can imagine how many people want her time, especially at the Olympics. And she's walking down that mix zone and I said, hey, Michaela, you got a second. She sees me. She stops and, and we, we we have a she gives me an interview. But we also look at, you know, and talk to each other for real. And um, I'm not saying I'm her best friend, but. You know, I, I really like it when she, because she does break down. She does let her guards down. She does let you into what she's feeling and what she's thinking. And, and she's very natural. She's very, um, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And and it's and it's very cool to see. Uh, that's changing just because her life is changing and the demands on her life are changing. But she is really natural. And she, after, she, you know, she'll, she's disappointed when she, she's a competitor. She doesn't, she's disappointed when she doesn't do well. However, after that slalom, she took 20 minutes in the tent by herself. And then she walked the gauntlet for two hours and was very honest. She's like, I'm nervous. I'm disappointed in myself and it'll never happen again. So I applaud her in how honest and in forthright she is. I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's really part of it. You know, I think, you know, both of us haven't been in, you know, around media people and around this industry for a long time. Somebody that's under that much scrutiny and in that spotlight to be able to show some emotion and some real humanity is a bit of a release. And you know, it creates this sort of affinity from the public too, to, to support her and sort of see how that whole thing goes. And so, I mean, not to, contrast and jump right into it but what's what's the difference between talking to Michaela and then talking to Lindsay Vaughn um I think I think Vaughn as as you know once this especially this past month when she had spoken out uh, about the White House and, and shared some of her feelings she's very open as well very open and she has been burned more than Michaela has. And so that's why I think you have a, a, a careful Lindsay Vaughn as well at times. However, again, I've known Lindsay forever. She's walking down the media mix zone. She stops. She talks to me. And uh, she's very honest. And, and like Michaela, she, you know, she walked the gauntlet when everybody said, how, you know, you're a failure. You got a bronze. You got a, you're a failure. How bad do you feel? And it's not that she got a bronze medal in the Olympics. It's right. It's crazy. So I think she's just been burned more and I think she's a little bit more guarded. Uh, but I still, 
think she's pretty open and pretty, um, she doesn't put a wall up a lot of times. Which is, which is incredible. So what, you know, for you to see the Olympics, I mean, you know, from your first Olympics as an athlete to now as a commentator, how has it changed? You know, obviously the equipment's changed, I'm sure. I mean, how, first of all, how much have the, have the boots and the skis changed from when you were at Bormio? Um, it's a different sport, really. <laughs> right, I'm sure. Um, uh, just to put Bormio in perspective, I won my medal in 1985, and the time was two, two minutes, six seconds. Uh, Bodhi won in 2005, which was the 20th anniversary, which was, what, eight, 18, eight, 13 years ago? Um, but 20 years after I won my medal at 206, he won the gold um, with a 156. Now, there's different snow, in, but the course is the same. So the equipment has sped up at least 10 seconds on average. And to explain it really easily, the skis um, are better. You can turn easier. Once you turn easier, you're going to have more pressure on your body. And that's, become, and that's why skiing has changed and become a power sport. You have to weigh 190 to 210 pounds. You have to have gigantic glute uh, leg muscles, but you have to have a core. From your shoulders to your hips has to be one huge core muscle. So it's changed in the fact that it's a power sport. Um, it's still technical, but now um, the power is much more integral in that percentage of, of how you win. And so, I mean, in terms, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to be a different athlete, you know, you have to train differently, you have to eat differently. Um, you know, at, at the same point, the speeds are, are picking up as well. So the danger factor and the mental game is, is gotta be right in there. I mean, it's just interesting. Like, you know, you see, I don't know, you always see the, the, the racers at the top trying to visualize the course, but are there any other sort of common sort of mental tricks that you see racers doing at the top of the run? Um, now, one thing that's changed that's pretty cool, and I don't even know if it's fair once I think about it, but there's a television always at the start of the, the start houses. So all the racers can see everybody else's run and see how the, the trail is running. So you get more information there. Uh, which is probably good and sometimes bad, but it's it's all visualization. It's a lot of focus, and when it comes right down to it, and this is what I think sport and especially Olympics is so cool. It's it's not the best skier that wins that day. Um, it's not the biggest athlete. It's not the guy who weighs the most. It is the person who can handle <clears throat> their head. What's going on between their ears? Who's focused? Who's confident? Who leaves the gate attacking? That's who wins. Uh, Olympic medals and, and World Cup medals, and I think that's just so interesting. I, I do too. I mean, there are huge decisions made in the fraction of a second, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you have your plan, but then something changes. Your ski chatters or a gust of wind hits hits you or, or, or something like that. I mean, is it, you know, when you're watching it and you're uh, – I, I guess the question is, is how much is going through your brain as a commentator that you're not saying during a race? Um. A lot, <laughs> a lot. Number one, as a commentator, you only have 12 to 15 seconds to make a point. So you've got to be really quick. You've you got to figure out who you're talking to, but um, just compare. So there's a lot of decisions on my part uh, behind the mic, but talking about being a racer, you inspect 
maybe five lines. Here's my dream line. Here's if I'm going a little slower here, if I'm going faster here, if I'm in trouble here, if the wind, here's my line. And then you get on the course and even though you're going 50 to 80, 90 miles an hour, it's amazing how slow it is because you have to make so many decisions. Um, you, uh, for example, um, Sophia Gogia on her win, her gold medal downhill run, skied a little too round and, and made some mistakes up top. And in the middle of that course, I could see her change. She's like, okay, I've got to take more risk. And she automatically uh, changed the focus and changed the feel of her run and won the bottom by like five tenths or something crazy. So the decisions these athletes are making, especially in alpine skiing, in a split second are phenomenal. And sometimes you make the bad one. Uh, and unfortunately that happens. Yeah, exactly. And so, so, you know, you're out in, um, out in Park City now, which is awesome. And I'm sure you're enjoying yeah. that. Um, how much, you know, what's, what's your calendar like right now? I mean, are you covering more ski races for the rest of this year or, or what's, what's, what's going on there? Well, uh, Kelly and I run elite team summer camps and, and even though they take place all summer, uh, the real work happens from uh, November to right now. And so Kelly's been working on that. We try to ski as much as possible, but I knew because I was going to Pyeongchang for three weeks, I was going to be gone that we were going to leave March open. So March for us is, uh, you know, keeping up the elite team work, but we are skiing as much as possible. We skied yesterday and I just have one more gig with NBC next week and I'm covering the world cup finals for NBC. Um, I'll be in Denver. I'm not going to be in Ore, Sweden, but um, my call time is 1230 AM and I'm done at 730 AM. And uh, I'm pretty excited to call the last races of the season for that, NBC. That's great. So you're, you're flying to Denver and you'll sit in, you know, in front of a blue screen and, and or, you know, and, and watch it yep. on the monitor, but call it live, right? Call it live. And, and I, I, we used to, in the early days, call everything uh, tape delayed and, and, and I try to stay away from the, um, results, but right. it just le it just leaks into your brain somehow. And yeah. I love live. The energy is better. It makes me on my game. I've got to stick my neck out there and say, she's skiing well, or he's skiing not so well. And, and yeah, we call everything live and it is really fun. It, it, it's so funny you say this. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, if you don't want to comment on this, that's totally fine. But I, you know, I watched a fair amount of Bodie Miller's commentary during the Olympics and I swear to God, Every time he would make a statement, the racer would do the opposite. You know, he, yeah. would, he would say like, oh, she's having a really bad run. And then that racer would, would finish up high or he'd say, oh, that racer is, is, is really doing great. And they'd finish in like 65th. And it was just, it was, you know, it just shows how hard it is, you know, even for, for experts. But, you know, Bodie, he, he took it on the chin from a lot of, of, um, uh, of other sports writers about how sort of drab his commentary was. I didn't mind it. You know, I thought, you know, I think yeah. Bodie, I mean, part of it is, is he's sort of an enigma of a personality and it's, it's just sort of like listening to, you know, this, this character from a, from a movie talk. Cause you're, you're just sort of mm -hmm. amazed what might come out of his mouth. But did you, did you listen to any of the, the other Alpine broadcast? I probably heard every word of Bodie. However, I was talking at the same time. So right. the NBC, right. the NBC television booth was right next to the radio booth separated by uh a one inch wall, you know, <laughs> oh this God. booth. So, um, yeah. we could hear Dan Hicks, Dan Hicks and Bodie were five feet away, but behind the wall. And, and, um, you know, we could hear, 
I could hear Bodhi's kind of low energy, whatever. You know, I, I enjoy Bodhi's, yeah. what he says. I just, you know, I, you know, I tell him to his face, hey, Bodhi, there's a race going on and it's ski racing. It's the most exciting sport ever. So maybe look at your screen. Yeah. But um, that's his way and that's fine. My way is the other way. And I can just imagine Bodhi and Dan hearing us because we're going crazy. Right. Oh my God, you know? And uh, so two different two different reads on how you should cover skiing that's that's how i read it and i would imagine for bodhi in his in his head he probably thinks he's really excited right right you know, right that, that's just sort of his pulse is like hitting 70 or something like yeah. that and, and you know that's about as good as it gets so do the media um at the olympics do you guys all stay in the same place or is everybody all over the place um everybody's all over the place in fact i was staying at the uh, freestyle venue, which I'm like, oh my God, because it's an hour to both the Alpine in a bus from where I was staying. And I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. However, again, after I'm over, I could do stuff. And so I could just walk behind my hotel and there was the moguls and everything. So That's awesome. I was staying there. Uh, I think Bodhi was staying at the bottom of the Alpine speed venue and there was nothing there. Only, only thing there was the athletes and a few NBC people. And I just heard that those guys were going stir crazy because they couldn't see anything. You couldn't travel anywhere. All you could do is do weights and see each other. Um, a lot of people were staying in Pyeongchang, which was where the IBC was international broadcast center, which is this unbelievably huge building that houses all the media. But then there was a media center down by the coast where curling and skating and, and hockey was so everybody was everywhere there was another um peggy shin who's from rutland another vermonter who's with the media she covers ussoc she was down by the by the ocean and so she had to take two hour bus ride to cover alpine so there was a lot of buses and one thing about the buses it seems like korea is all buses like i think everybody just takes buses but the buses were warm they have Wi-Fi and they had a television so we could watch the sports and do work on all that bus rides. It was that, awesome. That's that's to be appreciated for sure. So yeah. one of the things that, you know, as I was watching the broadcast and various other sports, the commentators frequently would say, well, you know, last night we ran into so-and-so at dinner. Uh, and it seemed like something that the announcers mentioned a lot. And, and I just found it hard to believe that in this city of millions of people that they're just accidentally running into Chloe Kim or something like that at dinner right. or, or, or does the, the, are there any sort of incidental bump into's with the athletes or, or would you really have to sort of coordinate something like that? Well, there was lots of press conferences going around. So Lindsay had press conferences here and there. So you could actually quote unquote bump into them at the press conference because after a press conference, you could just go up and interview them. So there's kind of made up bump into's, but like, Bodie and Steve Perino, who covered skiing, great friend of mine, they were staying in the same hotel as every ski racer. So they ate lunch with the ski racers. They ate dinner with the ski racers. So I can only speak for Alpine, but it might be like that in other sports where the media was staying in the same spot. Not a whole lot of athletes stay in the Olympic Village anymore. That's just right. not happening. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. All right, well, let's, let's talk about Park City for a second. So yeah. Where, where do you and Kelly ski? Like, what's your what's your mountain there? Well, um, I have an all Utah pass, so I get to choose. Uh, but our go-to is Deer Valley. Kelly yeah. has a pass at Deer Valley. Deer Valley, 
I don't want to sound like a, a advertising, but you know, I'm a racer, so I love steep groomers and they just have the best steep groomers. And then when it snows here, like it does a lot, um, Deer Valley skiers, uh, sometimes don't go off the groomers. So there's a lot of powder to be had at Deer Valley as well. So that good is, Deer Valley that is, that's so funny you say that that's what I hear from everybody. You know, it's, yeah. it'll be two, three days after the storm, and they've milked it at Alta and Snowbird, and then they're like, "Oh, let's let's go over to Deer Valley because there's probably plenty in the trees." Yeah. However, I have uh, a lot of Vermont friends. Actually, I skied with five GMVS alums at Alta on Monday, and it was going to be a snow day, so I get the call: "Hey, we're meeting at seven fifteen a.m. at Jeremy Ranch. We're going, and we may we not get up Little Cottonwood, but we're going." And and we do, and we did, and it was awesome. So I was skiing with five GMBSers at Alta all day on, on Monday. So even though I'm 2,000 miles away, I get yeah. my Vermont crew together here. It's exactly. And, you know, I think I'm pretty sure half of the busboys at Alta are from Vermont. You yes. Know? I mean, it's, yes. it's remarkable. You know, it was funny. You know, Barry and I were out in Jackson in early December, and, you know, everybody we ran into who was an employee was from Vermont. It was remarkable. I couldn't. Uh, I, think they, I think all thirty of them were living in a closet too. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. Housing. There's some housing issues there. I, I, yeah, no, they definitely have it. That's a whole like like you said. That's a whole another podcast right there. But right. Uh, hey, Doug, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And um, uh, you want to just give a quick uh, maybe elite team web address and and uh, pimp for that. Yeah, sure. We're almost all sold out. We have uh, a few spots left, but it's Elite Team Conditioning Camps, and we spell it really weird. E-L-I-T-E-A-M. So the T and E are, sh are shared. Elite Team, or uh, look it up, and EliteTeam.com. So basically, I retired in 88, and once you retire, it's bad timing because you kind of figure it all out. So I figured <laughs> it all out. I retired, and I'm like, how do I give it back? So I started yeah. this camp for young kids, 8 to 14, and and Basically, the kids describe it as a really fun boot camp. We teach grit. We teach toughness. We, of course, we teach sports physiology, sports nutrition. But that whole mental side, I really enjoy uh, sharing with the kids. So that's what we do. And it's in the Valley all summer. It's pretty awesome. You know, and, and that's, I mean, coaching, coaching kids is the best, you know, especially when they listen to you. But that, <laughs> that, that age group, you know, I mean, that's when they're, they look up to you, they're still listening and they're just sponges, right? Like, it's just amazing when you, when you see them, probably when you skied with your GMVS crew last week yeah. to see them and just see what kind of amazing people they grow up into. And you hope, you know, you hope that they're remembering some of that stuff. Yeah. Physiologically, that is the time you learn agility and coordination. So it is just the money, uh, time frame. For, to put kids through as many movements as possible. But you're right. They're up for anything. They're positive. Um, we do um, 100,000 burpees during our camp. And the kids are like, let's do 110,000. Yeah. That's the kind of kid I want. And I'm lucky to work with such a great group. That's awesome. Doug, thank you so much. And uh, we'll get you back on here sometime soon. All right. I'll see you in the valley. All right.